who is definitely uh, the, the prettier of the two. Um, and uh, by the way, you, you are welcome to come any Sunday and sit right there. I always sit over here, and to hear these two singing out as well uh, was a joy. Anyway, thank you, David, for being here. Um, you said you were at Ankeny Baptist for 23 years. For the first 10 or 12 years of that, I was kind of out of the associational loop. And for part of that, it was because I was out of state. And in the state of Texas, there are maybe a dozen GARBC churches and zero in the Dallas area. There's just nothing uh, in our association. And the church that we were a part of uh, was not a part of uh, a state or national association like the GARBC. Uh, we did have a, a small pastor's fellowship that uh, that the lead pastor uh, was, was a part of, and I would go along with him to these meetings, but I didn't know these people, and we didn't have a whole lot in common because we didn't have that structure beneath us. So moving back to Iowa and, and being in a, a GARBC church as I was in the Des Moines area, uh, I, I quickly became uh, associated with Pastor David Strope. In fact, I think the first time I really remember who you are, I, he doesn't know I'm going to say this. Uh, the first time I really remember him is at the uh, Iowa Association of Regular Baptist Churches annual conference. And most of those conferences are very just edifying and easy. And this one actually had kind of a stickler of an issue. There's probably a few years that that you might remember those. And I was very impressed with how he handled it. Uh, he was either the council chairman or he became the chairman that year. I don't, I don't remember. Uh, details are fuzzy. But I was very, very impressed with uh, how he could uh, handle somewhat troubled waters and the leadership that he brought to the state association. So when, when the need arose in the National Association for him to step in as our interim national representative, uh, you certainly had my full support. No one asked me, but you certainly had my full support. And I'm thankful that God has placed you where you are and what he has you doing today. Come and uh, share us, with us your heart this morning. Well, thank you so much, Pastor. I really appreciate the invitation to be here. The, one of the most fun things I do is being able to do what I'm doing this morning, which is to be with a fellowship church, uh, preach, present the ministries of our fellowship, encourage you, open the Word of God, and uh, meet people that I haven't met before, renew some uh, acquaintances with people that I do. Just a great delight to be here with you. Uh, Often my wife is not able to travel with me, but since you're only an hour and 45 minutes away, we, uh, we're taking advantage of that opportunity and really delight to have her with me uh, on the road. Okay, there we go. Okay, that's a picture of my wife, which you can see her. <laughs> here, the, I showed this earlier. Here are the, the 11 cutest grandchildren in the world. These are our 11, and we delight in them and really joy in that. Uh, Pastor already mentioned I began serving in fairly and unexpected fashion in this role. There was a sudden unexpected vacancy that occurred in the office of the national representative and the council had a meeting and they said you are hereby drafted, uh, begin service immediately and uh, uh, you know God has a way of just saying here's what you need to do and so we have been doing that literally for the last uh, two years uh, here this month. My role, and I uh, lead the fellowship in various ways, I travel extensively. I, uh, last year was in 53 
uh, churches, colleges, uh, association meetings, military bases, representing the fellowship, uh, doing uh, the work, uh, trying to communicate who we are and how we can assist one another. I really work at connecting people together. One of the great values of an association is what Pastor Hall just mentioned, which is drawing people together who otherwise would tend to live in isolation together. There are many of us, sadly, that develop the Elijah Syndrome. You remember the Elijah Syndrome? He said, I alone remain. I'm the only one faithful to God. And, and, and God said to Elijah, no, you are not the only one. There are many others who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You need to connect with these other prophets. And so uh, I regularly am involved in connecting churches as well as uh, pastors together with our fellowship, giving counsel and encouraging in various ways. Our fellowship is 91 years old. I think I did meet a 91-year-old gentleman uh, this morning and really delight in doing that. We are regular in theology. Uh, that is, we are normal. We are what the Bible teaches when you read the Bible about salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and we are uh, about one, uh, 1,150 churches affiliated in North America. There are multiple churches uh, beyond that in our international network that are connected with us through Regular Baptist International. And so we are uh, really delighted in being able to serve. If I were to try to distill it in a simple way, what is the GARBC? We do business as regular Baptist ministries. We are an association of churches, and we assist churches to be effective in, in the ministry of the Great Commission. Now, this church likely, I don't need to remind you, but remember what is the Great Commission, Matthew 28, if you were to memorize that. What is the main verb of Matthew 28? I'm, I'm glad to hear those answers. The, the main verb is make disciples. How do you do that? By going. By connecting with people. I mentioned this morning earlier. Far too often, our theology has somehow led us to an imbalance that we are not connected or or have a relationship with our lost community. I, I shared just by way of testimony that it was 15, 20 years ago when I had to look at my own life and say, I literally, I, I have no unsaved friends. So I had to make some changes in order to make connections with lost people in order to share Christ with them. We, we make disciples by going to them with the gospel. Sinners do not love the word of God. Sinners do not love the things of God. For the most part, sinners are not going to wake up Sunday morning. They watched the Iowa Hawkeye football game last night and are sorely disappointed. How can we lose in such significant fashion? They don't wake up this morning thinking, hey, I'm going to go to Grace Baptist Church today. Their, their, their mind is totally apart from that. You, as a church must go to them. You go with the gospel. And people come to Christ when they hear the gospel. I, I've realized this unique thing. You may want to write this down. Great theology here. More people come to Christ when we witness than when we don't. Uh, I'm not trying to be humorous. The number one reason in our fellowship why churches are not healthy, are not growing, is because they are not sharing the gospel of Christ 
in their community. They're virtually silent. And so we do that by bearing the gospel. People come to Christ when they hear the gospel. We identify them with Christ through, through the act of baptism. And then we teach them to observe all things. And so that's how we make disciples. Our fellowship exists to assist a church like Grace Baptist Church in that ministry of making disciples. And then if I further qualify it, we're Bible-centered, Christ-exalting, gospel-proclaiming, and God-honoring. But take your Bible with me. I'm just going to move quickly into a Christmas text. What in the world do you preach at Christmas time? Every preacher thinks that he has plumbed the depths of Scripture. And then you start reading the Bible again, and you realize there's so many fine texts of Scripture. So I asked you this morning, what is a paradox? Did you bring your dictionary with you this morning? I, I was often accused, by the way, at Ankeny Baptist Church of using words that people didn't know. Uh, I, I, I don't know why they would think that. But uh, is it a paradox? Or is it a pair of those? No, it's neither of those. Here's a, a paradox. It's a statement which seems to contradict itself or conflict with common sense, but does contain a truth. So that's a, a paradox. And so when I think of a paradox, here are just a couple. Make haste, less speed. Or slow down, accomplish more. Gain by letting go. Or, this is an old one, old timers, young people, you have to look this up online. A burden hand is worth two in a bush. You know, how can that be true? Well, those are paradoxes. Here's a biblical paradox. He who finds his life loses it. It's not my text. But if you want to lose your life, both now and in eternity, then live for yourself. But if you want to find life, then you need to lose it. That's a paradox. So when you think with me about the paradox, and I'll only show these, uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse was an old preacher at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And he gave in one of his sermons these eight paradox or contrasts of the incarnation. Marvelous ideas that help us understand even the phrase God in flesh. Is that not itself a paradox? God is infinite, unconfined. He is immutable. And yet we read in Luke chapter 2 that Jesus grew in stature and wisdom, and in favor with God and man. Those paradox. And so today I want to look with you today at the paradox of God with us. It's the purity, for example. Here are the paradox of the incarnation. The purity of an unwed mother. Or joy in a situation that normally would bring great pain and shame. The announcement of the birth of Christ, not to the intelligentsia, but rather to lowly shepherds. 
the neglect of Jesus by his own people. He came to his own, and what was true? His own did not receive him. It was a baby born not so much to live as to die. And so the, the, the multiple contrasts are seen. God with us, it's the one that was born in such lowly surroundings, in a stable, born of poor parents. Do you remember Joseph and Mary bringing a sacrifice following the birth of Jesus? What did they bring? Do you remember? They brought what only poor people could bring. They brought a pigeon. And so here is the eternal king of all glory uh, uh, being laid in an animal's feeding trough. Here's the Lord of all glory. The, the brilliance of that glory seen, remember, at the transfiguration. All of that glory, totally veiled, present, but never seen. So in your mind's eye, when you've seen those artists' rendition of Jesus and that yellow hue that goes around him and comes out his eyes, that was not true of Jesus. When, when you looked at Jesus and would come across him on the streets of Jerusalem, you would say, he looks just like an ordinary Jewish man of the first century. He had no form or comeliness that we would be necessarily drawn to him by his physical stature. Here is, imagine, a baby. And he is king of kings. He is lord of lords. He's God in a stable, the supreme creator of the universe, and the only of his creation to welcome him were the barnyard animals around him. God the Holy One, the just one, now living apart from sin, however, he was living with sinners. Our sin, remember, brought alienation from God, pronounced Sinful and worthy of hell are we. And yet the Son of God eternal is that simple paradox, God with us. You'll remember John 1.14, the Word was made flesh and He dwelt among us. Literally, He tabernacled among us. He pitched a tent among us. And we beheld His glory. It wasn't the brilliance of light, but rather it was in the communication of grace and truth. Christ, the richest of all, became poor for the sake of sinners, who, is, uh, who are the poorest of all. And this is so that we who are so poor might become rich. And so you'll find it in your text, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Now, lest we be guilty of wrong interpretation, think with me about context. What is the context of 2 Corinthians 8? Go ahead and let your eyes wander a bit through that text. Do you see at chapter 
I guess it would be helpful if I got into 2 Corinthians. Let me do that. Get into 2 Corinthians 8. He speaks about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. He speaks of severe affliction, verse 2. And yet, in that severe affliction, there is an abundance of joy. And though they're evidently experiencing extreme poverty, they are generous. And he speaks in verse 4 about the favor of being able to take part in sending a relief offering to the saints in Jerusalem. So you begin to see here in 2 Corinthians 8, he's talking about the ministry of giving on the part of these believers here in Macedonia, sending gifts, offerings to uh, believers undergoing famine in Palestine. They're doing so not from conditions of great wealth. Rather, he he speaks of their, their extreme poverty. I find it interesting too, have have you ever meditated through verse 5? He says, they gave first to whom? They they gave themselves to the Lord, and then to us by the will of God. Now it is not my purpose to focus upon the manner in which you give. But, But I would want to remind you that the first thing we give is not our money. It is rather our lives. And biblical giving is a representation or a picture that my life is God's. And therefore I give intangible offerings in the local church. He speaks about completing this act of grace. And then in verse 7, to excel in this act of grace. So when you read 2 Corinthians 8, you're looking at a text that's teaching them about their giving ministry. So now, lest we lose the impact of that, he says, because I want you to consider the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet he became poor, that we who are poor might become rich. So let's ask ourselves the question, and I could give a long, long lecture here, but I don't want to do that. So jot down as much as you can here in a moment. But I want you to answer for me. If I were to ask you to give me a one-word synonym for the word grace, not an adjective but a noun, what would that word be? Debbie, you may not answer if you know the answer. What would the one-word noun be? Does anyone venture a guess? That would be where it would be exemplified, but not necessarily a synonym. It would be favor or kindness. And then if you attach the adjective to it, it would be what? It would be the undeserved favor or kindness. And then if you expanded it further, it would be the undeserved favor of God to sinners... Best seen where or in whom? Best seen in Jesus. John 1.14, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then if you really want to see 
the best illustration of grace, you would look beyond, for example, you would look beyond the manger. You would even look beyond Jesus in his earthly ministry as he publicly served for three, three and a half years. But you would rather go to the hill of Golgotha. And you would see Roman soldiers as he has been denied by Jews. And so you'd see those soldiers lead him to the cross and unlike other people crucified, Jesus would lay himself on the cross of Calvary and you would see him nailed hand and feet to the cross. And you would see the, the, the cross raised and hear the thump of the cross in the ground. And for those three hours or so on the cross of Calvary, you would see the awful physical agony of Jesus as he bled and died. You would hear the words that he communicated on the cross of Calvary. Perhaps if you knew scripture, you, you would see, especially in the descent of that uh, midday blackness that came upon the earth, you would see God separating himself from his only begotten son as he is numbered as a transgressor, as he bears the wrath I deserve. Because when you look at grace, it's a rather bloody image. It's the image not merely of a baby in a manger. It's of a grown man fully human, body, soul, spirit. One person, two natures, God. Remember, the Son of God, John 1, is the one who spoke and formed the worlds. It is the pre-incarnate Christ who took dust of the ground and fashioned Adam and breathed into him the breath of life. It's Jesus pre-incarnate, who took a rib from Eve, or from Adam and fashioned Eve and likewise breathed into her the, the, the breath of life and making them in his image. It's God in flesh. Dying at, at Calvary. And oh, there's so much more that I could begin to share with you about the grace, but that's just one word where Paul is saying, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is he driving them to? He is driving them to see in very clear bodily form God in flesh. God in flesh in order to be my Savior by bearing my sin at Calvary. For you know, he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Simply put, the poor become rich through the poverty of the richest. So let's ask ourselves some questions, just see a couple of things from this text. Christ, infinitely rich, became poor for us, for sinners. Please hear, please see the scriptures that Christ is the eternal Son of God, having no beginning, having no ending, 
the second person of the Trinity, equal with the Father, equal with the Spirit. One God, three persons. And from all eternity they have known the joy of fellowship as the triune God. He, he is the God from eternal decree who has established all things. As I've noted, he is the God of creation. He is the eternal Son of God. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. No other had ever impoverished himself as Jesus did. The first begotten before every creature, through whom everything visible and invisible exists. Do you understand today that the reason why you live and breathe today is because the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, has decreed it to be so? It was 2017, I think it was, when I was in critical condition in a New Jersey hospital. I scared my beloved wife to death, I'm sure. Uh, deep vein thrombosis went into full-blown two pulmonary embolisms that are not making it possible for me to breathe. And I literally can't breathe. How, how can I say that I am living today? Except to say that, well, God has used the, the, the skill of doctors, but also it was God's pleasure that I would survive that and live and serve yet today. You see, God, the Son, is the eternal Son. And He further became the impoverished Son. He became mortal humanity. He was numbered as a transgressor. And He did it so that sinners, people who are desperately poor, might become rich by the poverty of the Son of God. Now I want you to think with me, pause, and you'll need to pull some ideas from Scripture. Um, do, do you remember the metaphor used by both Old Testament and Paul quotes it in New Testament? Remember chapter uh, 3 of Romans where Paul says, he says, You're, you are like an open sepulcher. We, we all are. Um, and so let's, let's exhume ourselves today spiritually. He says that in your throat is the poison of asps. The cursing of God. There, there's no respect of God in your, in your eyes. He said you have no fear of God. There are none among humanity who are righteous. No, not one. They all do not understand. They... None of them seek after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together, become unprofitable. There's none of us that do good, no, not one. And please understand, that's not to say that we don't do temporarily moral deeds, but none of those deeds can be defined as good in, in their ability to bring me into the presence of God. Ephesians chapter, chapter 2 says that 
that we are sons of disobedience. I, I showed you a picture of my 11 beautiful grandchildren, and they range from age 17 to 8 months. Do you know what I've never had to teach them? I've never had to teach them how to say no. I want what I want when I want it. It's part of who we are. We're children of wrath. And let's please hear the gospel message clearly that the soul that sins, it will die. God is not this kind, benevolent grandfather. If God were to smoke a pipe, he would smoke a pipe and sit in a rocking chair and say, well, I know you're bad, but come on in anyways. God being eminently and infinitely righteous and holy must and will judge sinners. Every sinner. Me included, you included. Sinners are desperately poor. And they can become rich only by the poverty of the Son. And, and again, I would have you think of some scriptures with me. Do you remember in this very book of scripture, 2 Corinthians 5? Perhaps you could turn to it, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He has made God, the Father has made him who knew no sin... To be sin for us, that we, in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. God the Father numbered Jesus, the righteous Son of God made flesh, as a sinner and treated Him as every sinner must be treated. Isaiah 53 so aptly communicates. How, how God laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. You see, the poverty of the Son is not merely, is not merely the incarnation. It, it is rather in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary for me, a sinner. Uh, I'm like you with all of the wonder, a bit of the mystery, some of the excitement of of the incarnation, of the celebration of Christmas to imagine. Can can you imagine Mary, Joseph holding baby Jesus and understanding this is the Son of God. This is the eternal God who has so humiliated himself by becoming limited and mortal. And so as Jesus grew, he tired, he had to eat, he had to sleep. And yet the ultimate poverty is not that he became human, it is rather that he became sin for us. And by that poverty, sinners are made rich. He was numbered as that transgressor. The poor indeed do become rich through the poverty of the richest. So then think with me, what then should we give? 
What do we give God who so graciously provides for us? Uh, Pastor Hall may, may deal with this. I, in my travels, I often, I can't believe how many times I've not been able to observe communion. So I'm delighted to be able to be with you today. We, we of course, believe that the elements, what we do is a memorial ordinance. It, it does not do anything that saves us. Rather, it's quite symbolic so that in the eating and the drinking, I am affirming my faith in Christ. I am affirming my love for Christ. I am affirming that so far as I am able, that I am living a godly, faithful, obedient life. That's exactly why Paul in 1 Corinthians says, be careful when you're eating, you need to examine yourselves. So that the symbolic action and the reality of your life are consistent. What do we give this God who so graciously provides for us? Well, we give him faith. We, we believe. We trust I came to Christ as a 10-year-old boy, and my theology, I'm sure, was not, uh, was probably inaccurate, it, it was certainly incomplete, but I, but I knew that I was sinful, and that day, God's Spirit brought to me the awareness that I was under the, the penalty of death, and the only thing I could do to trust Jesus for my salvation. As best a 10-year-old child can do, under less than ideal circumstances, to say, God saved me by what you did at Calvary for me. But I also want you to understand, is that faith a one-time expression, or rather, is it the continuing expression so that every day that you live... Galatians 2.20 says that we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. I couldn't sleep very well last night, so I was up early. And in my place where I do my private study, prayer, I said today, as I drive to Harlan, as I interact with Debbie for a couple hours in the car, as we have opportunity later on in the day to meet with our small group back at church, as I preach at Harlan, as I try to do the best I can to represent the fellowship, God, I, I do this by faith in Jesus who loved me and gave himself for me. It's a good thing to give that faith to Christ. We give him adoration. C.S. Lewis has a quotation that I've often used that our adoration is, in, is incomplete until it, it is expressed to God. That quite literally our adoration is the, not merely the fruit of our lips, it is the fruit of our life that is given in adoration of Christ. I, I've often thought of this here in recent days. Why are, why are we so shy so reticent in witness for Christ. Um, 
Would you like me to tell you about my 17-year-old granddaughter? Her name is Victoria. She just auditioned and competed and played first chair oboe in the all-state concert band. Would you like to tell, to have, have, have me tell you about my, my little Eleanor? She's six years old, seven years old now, who for whatever reason thinks that Papa is, I'm, that he is about the best person in all the world. Others may not think it, but Eleanor thinks it. Would you like me? It's, it's easy for me to share about people that I love. Do you love Jesus Christ? Do you adore him to the point where quite literally it, it, you can't, it won't be long in a conversation before that conversation begins to revolve around the thing that really is your greatest focus, your adoration. Certainly this Christmas season 2023, the old Christmas carol, come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. We give him that adoration. We give him our life. One wrote of this passage, the logic implicit in this statement of this great truth is too obvious for anyone to miss. If he did all this for me, that is Jesus, then nothing I give or do for him can be too much. Such love constrains me I am redeemed at incalculable cost. I am no longer my own. All that was mine is now his for him to make use of in accordance with his holy purpose. That, by the way, is exactly the context of the Corinthians who said, God, we are poor. Uh, To be honest with you, Lord, we are do not have much to give. But we're going to excel in our giving because we love Christ and we love the saints in Jerusalem. Is it too much to ask then to give our life or our grateful service? And I particularly included that word grateful or glad. I I fear many believers... I call it the junior high syndrome. I don't know if we have any junior hires present. But the typical reaction of an unsanctified junior hire when given a task is they do it. It's the junior high shoulder slump. I know that people in Harlan, junior hires, don't ever display that. You know, we believers, how many times when we pick up this book and God gives us very clear direction to witness, to serve, to labor, to, to, to do the various tasks of what it means to know and live for Christ, that we, as opposed to giving God grateful service, Certainly one of my favorite Christmas carols uh, is uh, the old Christmas carol, In the Bleak Midwinter. Frosty wind did moan. 
Earth stood hard as iron, water like the stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, in the bleak midwinter many years ago. Heaven cannot hold him, nor the earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. God himself became a man born to pay sin's price. He's the great redeemer, our Lord Jesus Christ. What can I give him? Poor as I am. If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a nobleman, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him? Give him all my heart. Father, thank you for the Savior. Thank you for the work of Christ. We are so profoundly thankful today. Because we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. So today, that person that does not know Christ, may they be brought to faith in Christ. May we give that glad, grateful service the offering not merely of the things of our life, but our very lives themselves. Thank you so much for the grace that has been given, praying that we now, in response, will be led to faith, to love, to service for Christ. Together we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare for